Welcome to the Leadership Institute's Wednesday Wake Up Club Breakfast Podcast, a recap of the in-person breakfast held on the first Wednesday of every month at LI's Stephen P.J. Wood Building in Arlington, Virginia. To attend a future breakfast, visit www.leadershipinstitute.org breakfast. On August 1st, 2018, Mark Mix, president of the National Right to Work Committee and National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation, explained the monumental Supreme Court case, Janus v. American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, or Janus v. AFSCME. Let me, um, let me formally start my talk. Are we there yet? How much farther? This trip takes forever. Has anyone ever heard those words before? If you have, raise your hand. Okay, has anyone ever said those words before? Raise your hand. Have any of my kids ever said that before? Yeah. Having a large family has uh, prohibited us from traveling by air to most destinations where we've decided to go on vacation. That's why everything east of the Mississippi is in play for the mixed family as they were growing. We have a large car. We started out, my wife started out with a very sexy two-door sedan when I met her. I had a... Uh, I had a 2000 uh, or a 1996 Volvo with four doors and could fit four people comfortably. And when we got married, we used those two cars. And then we had our first child, had Kelsey, and and um, we ended up going to an SUV, a little bit of a uh, crossover SUV. And then I was uh, forced to go to a minivan, which was very difficult. And then when we had our sixth child, we realized that we could get a big, big GMC Yukon. Now that is really cool. My wife drives that now. She loves the GMC Yukon. But what that meant was that in order to travel anywhere, whether it be Nashville, Tennessee, or Miami, Florida, or Fernandina Beach, or uh, Charleston, South Carolina, or Savannah, Georgia, or all those places where, where the Mix family has spent some time on vacation, Myrtle Beach, the Outer Banks, that we had to load up our truck pack it up, put the kids in, and within 15 or 20 minutes of leaving Washington, D.C., we heard, are we there yet? And you know, those words, while they may be a little bit annoying to a, to a father who will not stop, anybody else in the room who drives through the night continuously without stopping? Yeah, there you go, good, thank you. I feel a lot better about that. Um, my kids still, my, my daughter Samantha, who's our number four daughter, still is very scared of going on trips because she's afraid I won't stop. But anyway, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Those words ring true when we talk about the issue of compulsory unions in America and right to work. Because since 1935, our legislature and our then president, Franklin Roosevelt, decided it was appropriate to compel American workers to join a private organization and then pay a fee to this private organization for the privilege of working in America. Now we shake our head about that and say, how can that be? Well, there's lots of things that we can shake our head about and say, how can that be? But one thing we can do is we can put our shoulder to a job like that and try to restore individual freedom and freedom of association in America's workplaces. It's a little slice of the pie, but ladies and gentlemen, as we walk through this talk today, I'll hopefully will convince you that it's a bigger slice than any of us in the public policy process imagine, and the implications of this privilege that have been granted to organized labor have had a radical impact on the country as a whole. Not labor unions in their pursuit to represent workers, but labor unions using their political power granted by 
the Congress, by state legislatures, by county boards and commissions. These powers of privilege of politics and speaking to a government is a policy that has granted them unbelievable and undeniable privilege and power in the American public policy process. Ladies and gentlemen, on June 27th, the Supreme Court did something about that. And that is a case called Janus v. AFSCME. I'm going to talk about that case, but let me first just set the table by saying in 1935, when we created the federal labor policy, it wasn't until about 19, in the mid-1950s when union officials in the public sector said, you know, this is a pretty neat little power to have, to be able to compel people to join us and pay dues as a condition of working in America. And someone in Wisconsin, of all places, there was a guy up there, the progressive state of Wisconsin, decided this model was to be pretty cool for the states too. And so in 1959, Wisconsin passed the first statewide bargaining law for government employees in America. New York City was a little bit ahead of them because the New York City power brokers there, the old Tammany Hall folks, knew that by forcing people into collectives and creating a spoil system, it would enhance their political power. They were right about that. But Wisconsin was the first state to actually codify this into law for every state employee in the state. And ladies and gentlemen, what power that granted them. The ability to compel any state employee to be in this collective unit and then force them to pay for the privilege of being compelled. That odyssey, beginning in 1959, started to grow and started to expand across the country till the 1970s when many states started passing these laws. In the private sector, while the unionization rate there was declining a little bit, the unionization rate in the government sector was growing exponentially. And it was because of these laws they were passing. So in 1977, we brought a case on behalf of some teachers in the Detroit, Detroit school system. It was a, a case called ABOOD, A-B-B-O-D, ABOOD, where we asked the United States uh, Supreme Court to decide whether or not it was appropriate for a worker to be compelled to join a private organization, have money extracted from their paycheck as a condition of their employment, and have that money used for political purposes. Well, at the time, it was kind of a novel case. It was the first time since the growth of the public sector union structure had gotten to a point where it was noticeable. People were starting to notice what was happening in, in, states like, in cities like New York City where the financial condition was deteriorating and things were happening. People paid attention to this idea of, of monopoly unionism in the public sector. In fact, it was Franklin Roosevelt who, when written, when he got a letter from a union official saying, you know, you're going to do this in the private sector, why don't you do it in the public sector? And Franklin Roosevelt said it would be unthinkable that we would unionize the government. It's a totally different system than the private sector. That was Roosevelt. He was on our side on that one. So we bring this case and we go to the Supreme Court and we, we let them know that our plaintiffs in this case coming out of Michigan, the Detroit School Board, we sued them, and we said these workers were compelled to pay for politics which they disagreed with. And the Supreme Court looked at it and said, you know, you're probably right about this. The idea that we can force someone to have money taken out of their paycheck to, use, to be used for overt political campaigns, for causes and ideals that they don't believe in, is wrong. We can't do that. So the court, like Solomon, decided to split the baby. They said, we can't force these people to pay for overt politics, but we certainly can allow the unions to conduct their business and allow them to continue to compel workers to pay a fee as a condition of working for their own government. So from 1977 till June 27th in 2018, the fight to free public sector workers from this compulsory power of union officials has been waged by the National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation. The folks, uh, many of you may have known Reed Larson, remember Reed Larson, founded the Right to Work Foundation in 1968, primarily to litigate issues like this and take cases from inception on behalf of one individual 
to the highest court in the land. What a beautiful story that is, ladies and gentlemen. An individual with the courage to stand up and with an organization like the Right to Work Foundation behind them can litigate a case and get their day at the highest court in the land. There's something really romantic about that. There's something American about that. And there's something that just warms our hearts in the sense that this system does work. It's the best system that's ever been created where we can have justice because of the courage of one individual. The foundation was predicated on that idea and over the, since 1968 we've been in front of the highest court in the land 18 times on behalf of workers. But probably the biggest case we've ever litigated was one on June 27th of this year and that was Janice V. Afsme. That case comes after the Abood case in 1977, the Leonard case of 1986, the Hudson case of 1990, the Davenport case of 2007, the Knox case of 2012, the Harris case of 2014, the Friedrichs case of 2016, and now the Janus case of 2018. Each one of those Supreme Court arguments was designed to move the ball toward individual freedom, to the fundamental right of freedom of association. And each time the court was confronted with the same question, does a government union speak politically when they lobby the government? By definition, they do. You know, we are granted the privilege of redressing our government. It is we the people. It is a divine experiment in self-government. And yet, in America, in the public sector, we have granted a private organization a position between taxpayers and citizens and their elected officials. And that has been labor unions. In the, in the mix there, in the middle, with extraordinary power to influence the direction of government. Because everything that government does is allocating our tax dollars. They are speaking politically, if you will, or from a policy standpoint, they're speaking on what the priorities of government will be. And those priorities affect each and every one of us in this room. So we have always contended that everything that government unions do is political. It is political speech. They are trying to convince legislators or members of Congress or mayors or city councils how to allocate taxpayer resources. That's political speech. And each of our arguments as we build up from Abood to Janus has included that argument that this is an impossible, unworkable situation if you're going to allow them to compel government employees to pay for the privilege of working for their own government. And through the course of those cases that I laid off, there will be a quiz. We'll have to, you'll have to name these cases um, and the years and the decisions. But through the course of these cases, we proved to the government, we proved to the courts that it was unworkable to try to regulate a system of First Amendment rights, to try to regulate a system of association when it comes to a core principle like political speech. And so with Mark Janis and Diane Knox and Pamela Harris and all the plaintiffs that were the lead plaintiffs in the cases that we talked about litigating up to the point of Janus, we have stood up and said, this can't be compelled. And finally, finally, on June 27, 2018, with Morton Blackwell standing on the sidewalk with me, no greater privilege. Probably having Reed Larson there would have been just a little bit better, but having Morton there was pretty cool. I'm a Leadership Institute grad, by the way. I, I, I'm a uh, uh, youth leadership training school graduate. I'm a legislative project management school graduate. I'm a candidate development school graduate. I'm not a public speaking graduate, as you can tell. Um, but but I'm, I'm, I'm going to get that diploma someday, I promise. I will. Um, I'll look on the calendar and see when the next one is. But in all those days, we finally got the court to say that everything that government unions do is political. And they can no longer compel any government employee anywhere in America to pay dues or fees to get a job.
And ladies and gentlemen, that decision was broad sweeping. Justice Sam Alito led a majority of Thomas and Roberts and Gorsuch and, and uh, who else? Uh, who's, who am I missing? Um, yeah, that guy. Good. Thank you. That basically articulated exactly what we had been saying since 1977, saying that this speech and the power of unions to manipulate these collectives in a sense of forcing them to pay fees for the privilege of working for their government when they're actually redressing government on issues that they would say, well, these are important issues, workplace issues. Well, no, they're not. While they may be managing the workplace for many friendly governments, the idea that they're allocating resources is something that's very important, and the court agreed with us on a 5-4 decision. And not only did they say workers can't be compelled to pay dues or fees to keep a job or to get a job in government, they said, and they went farther, we actually asked them to say this, we didn't think they were going to, but they said that every worker, government worker in America, has to opt in to the union as opposed to opt out. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that may not sound much to you, but for a guy who's been working on this for 32 years, as Vice President Joe Biden would say, and since I won't say it because my daughter's here, it's a big deal. <laughs> it's a big deal. Because as of June 27th at 10.05 a.m., when that decision was handed down, Union officials across the country had to go to every single government employee in the 22 states, over 5 million workers who are affected by this, and actually who are non-members of the union that are compelled to pay fees, actually had to get them to sign an affirmative waiver of their First Amendment rights. So from that moment forward, no controller in the 22 states that allowed compulsory dues should have taken one more penny from any worker that works for the government, whether it be the state government, the county government, the city government, the village government, whatever it was, they could no longer compel anyone until that worker affirmatively said, you can take my money. That doesn't sound like a very big deal to you, does it? Sounds simple. Sounds commonsensical, doesn't it? It's about money. That's right. Organized labor in this country is a $20 billion a year business, and they spend gads and gads and gads on politics. You know, we do a study every two years when the federal election cycle completes itself, and just by looking at the reports that they file, this is stuff that doesn't go, that they don't, a lot of stuff they don't report. They spent $1.7 billion in federal elections alone. Now, why do they spend that money? Because they've got the power from government to compel that money. They are wards of the state. They're, they have to play politics because if the politicians in office don't continue to allow them to collect this money, they're out of business, most likely. But $1.7 billion, let's count that off. That's more than the DNC spent. That's more than the RNC spent. That's more than Donald Trump spent. That's more than Hillary Clinton spent. That's more than Soros spent. That's more than the Koch spent. And now, ladies and gentlemen, they can't compel another state employee anywhere in the country to pay them as a condition of working for their government. The Janus decision is not the end of the road. We're not there yet. This battle, though, however, I don't think is going to take forever. We're almost there. When I tell my youngest daughter, Madeline, when she asks how much longer, I will say one hour, 258 minutes. That sounds a lot better than five hours, Madeline. How much farther do we have to go? Well, we've got the, public, the private sector to free. We have right-to-work laws in 27 states right now that are in effect. We, have a, we passed one in Missouri, the 28th right-to-work law we passed in Missouri. However, it never went into effect. 
It's on the ballot August 7th. Anyone here from Missouri or knows anyone in Missouri, tell them to vote yes on Prop A. Get your Twitter machine going, get your Google machine going, get your email machine going, whatever it is. Tell your folks in Missouri to vote yes on Prop A so that the people of Missouri, the private sector workers in Missouri, because the public sector workers are now covered under the Janus decision, the private sector workers in America could be freed from compulsory unionism. One thing that's important, and I'll finish up, and I know we have some questions. Not one worker in America, not one government employee anywhere in the country is prohibited from joining a union. Not one worker anywhere in America is prohibited from giving a contribution to a labor union or having them give a, or having a, giving a political contribution to a labor union. Not one worker in America is prohibited from giving their entire paycheck to a union if they choose to do so. If they choose to do so. If they choose to do so. Are we there yet? Not quite. There's still more work to do. But my gosh, we're better than halfway. And as we drive home to New York to my mother's house, there's a sign on the road. It's a sign. My, my mother's name, she, her maiden name was, Ch was Snyder. Her, her married name is Chapman. My name's Mix. Don't ask. It's confusing. It's a whole other lecture. But uh, Kelsey knows the story, but, but no reason for you to know that. But there's a sign that turns out it is the halfway point between our house in Fairfax City and my mom's house in Alfred, New York. And it's Chapman Snyder. Chapman County, Snyder County change. And when I get past that sign, those milestones, those mile markers, it's no longer a sense of the clock. It's a sense of seeing the next milestone. And for right to work and for the people that defend individual freedom in the workplace, we are now on a journey that has milestones and markers. And Janice is one of them. And we are way better than halfway on ending compulsory unions in America once and for all. That's our mission. That's our goal. And with the courage of people like Mark Janice and the support of individuals like you and literally 80% of Americans who believe it's wrong to force a worker to pay dues to get or keep a job in America, we will win this battle. And we will finally end the trip, and Samantha will be able to go to the bathroom.